0: From Washington, this is Talking Tax. I'm David Schultz. So the idea of using taxes to disincentivize certain behaviors is nothing new. So-called sin taxes have been around since time immemorial. And today we have heavy tobacco taxes that fall into that same category. But now a few jurisdictions are using their respective tax codes to try to crack down on something else. Guns. Cook County, Illinois, the state's largest county, enacted a tax on guns and later ammunition as a way to address the gun violence that has been plaguing Chicago and its surrounding areas. However, two months ago, the Illinois Supreme Court struck down these levies on the grounds that they violated the Constitution's Uniformity Clause. It's worth noting, though, that the court did not rule on a Second Amendment question, which we'll get to more in a bit. In response, last month, Cook County enacted a revised version of these guns and ammo taxes that it says can withstand judicial scrutiny. We reached out to Cook County officials to see if they wanted to come on this episode to talk about it, but they didn't respond in time. Instead, today we'll be talking about gun taxes with a gun control advocate and with the plaintiff in that Illinois Supreme Court case. First, the plaintiff. Pete Patterson is an attorney with the firm Cooper & Kirk and was the lead counsel in the lawsuit that successfully overturned the Cook County taxes. He spoke with Bloomberg tax correspondent Michael Bologna about the case. And Michael asked him, given the escalating problem of gun violence and especially the use of guns in mass shootings, why localities shouldn't be able to try to use their tax codes to combat this?
1: when you ask if there's anything wrong, we uh, are involved in litigation, we're dealing with constitutional questions. And what the United States Supreme Court has said is that, um, you know, you generally cannot impose a revenue tax on a fundamental constitutional right. So uh, from that perspective, we're arguing that yes, it is, you know, it's not uh, correct under our legal system to impose. These types of taxes. Now, if you're acting from asking from a fairness perspective or some sort of moral perspective, that's not really what we're talking about in the suit. But I will note that a lot of the data shows that criminals generally do not purchase firearms at retail. They steal them. They get them off the street. Uh, they do things of that nature. I think there's a study that we had cited in the litigation in the city of Chicago. Something like 95% of crime guns, the criminal does not purchase at retail. So the criminal, the taxes are in retail sales, so that uh, you know you're not really taxing the people who are causing the
2: problem. Well, um, let's dig in on Cook County for a second, and um, I think most people know Cook County is the largest county in Illinois. It embraces the city of Chicago. Um, can you kind of describe the history of Cook County's tax on guns and ammunition, and then the litigation that's brought by uh, your client, uh, Guns Save Life Incorporated?
1: Yes, absolutely. So in 2012, I believe it was, Cook County imposed a $25 tax on each retail sale of guns. And then in 2015, they added on a tax on ammunition. And that was uh, when we with Gun Save Life and uh, a gun store and an individual brought a lawsuit against Cook County, challenging that under both the federal and uh, constitution and the Illinois constitution and we've litigated that since then. We lost at the trial court level, we lost at the Court of Appeals level, but then just recently we prevailed at the Illinois Supreme Court, which held that Cook County's tax violated something called the uniformity clause in the Illinois Constitution. And, uh, but then Cook County shortly after amended its law to try to fix the problem that the court identified so we've asked the Supreme Court to um, reconsider and say, well, you know, you've got to tell us whether this tax is constitutional under the U.S. Supreme Court and Illinois Constitution right to keep and bear arms provisions, which the court did not address. So that's
2: where the case currently is sitting. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have any expectation about the Illinois Supreme Court um, making a decision along those lines in the near future? or What do we know? Well, we know we've got our rehearing petition pending before them, so they could act on that
1: at any time. I mean, they could say, yes, uh, these legal issues are well-developed. We don't need to send the case back down for further proceedings. We're just going to decide it. Um, And that's what we've asked them to do. Alternatively, they could remand and say, well, you know, you've got to go back through the, you know, lower court system and let them get a first shot at it.
2: Okay. And, um, in either circumstance, I mean, is there some possibility that this issue might go to the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, either from your side or from Cook County side? or?
1: Yes, absolutely. We've got a federal Second Amendment claim. There is clear United States Supreme Court precedent in the First Amendment context, striking down taxes on fundamental rights, uh, the right of the press. There was a case where Minnesota had a special use tax on paper and ink used by newspapers, the Supreme Court uh, struck that down. Of course, uh, voting rights, poll taxes, Supreme Court has struck those down. So we think this would be, uh, if, if the Illinois Supreme Court were to rule that this does not violate the Second Amendment, uh, this certainly would appear to be a case that uh, would potentially be interested, interesting to the U.S.
2: Supreme Court. Well, let's um, dig in for a minute, too, about taxes on guns and ammunition. This isn't necessarily new, right? I mean, the, the federal government has had an excise tax on uh, guns and ammunition going back uh, almost 100 years. Uh, is, does that uh, pass constitutional muster or, or not?
1: You know, that, that is a good question. That potentially could be subject to challenge. There are some differences with that tax. I think it is not in the nature of a sin tax you know, the way that meant to uh, depress or to um, reduce the activity in the way that the Cook County tax is. I think the revenues for that, at least to a certain extent, are used to fund um, uh, hunting and wildlife sorts of initiatives. But, you know, that could be uh, a a potential issue.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, Cook Cook County's tax, though, is, is quite unique nationally, isn't it? Or, I mean, are there any other jurisdictions that have a similar tax or...? Seattle has one. I believe Tacoma passed one. I'm not sure
1: if it is in effect yet. Um, I think perhaps, uh, I don't know why this hasn't proliferated more unlike some other uh,
2: measures. It could be because of these serious constitutional problems. Um you know, to pe- play devil's advocate here for a minute, I think Cook County might argue that the Second Amendment doesn't necessarily bar states and localities from imposing a tax on guns and ammunition, and rather the Second Amendment draws kind of a, a fuzzy line on any tax that is so high as to place an undue burden on gun ownership for an ordinary citizen. So in the context of a $25 flat tax on on guns and um, a few cents per cartridge on ammunition, has Cook County actually established a an unconstitutional burden? Uh? Yes.
1: You know, the mere fact, the mere exposure of the right to the tax power is the unconstitutional burden. That's what the U.S. Supreme Court held in the case dealing with paper and ink for newspapers. There was evidence that the tax burden was actually lighter for the newspapers, then, if they had just been subject to the generally applicable taxes in Minnesota, the Supreme Court said that doesn't matter. Uh, you know, we're not the same thing when uh, the poll tax, a dollar fifty cents, in Virginia, that the Supreme Court struck down. They didn't ask. Uh, well, we're only striking this down for people that can't afford to pay it, or you know, we're looking into what effect they had it has. Uh, they just said no. You cannot tax these rights, and part of the reason is there are easy alternatives to raise revenue. You have general sales taxes, you have general income taxes that don't target constitutional rights. And then how's a court gonna judge how much is too much? You know, okay, $25, that's not too big of a burden, but $50 would be. I mean, courts just, uh, it, it, well to have clear lines in these sorts of circumstances and what the courts have said is you can't have these taxes.
0: That was Pete Patterson with the firm Cooper & Kirk. Now we hear from a gun control advocate, but not necessarily someone who favors gun taxes. Rosanna Smart is an economist at the Rand Corporation who specializes in research on how economic policy affects crime and public health. She spoke to Michael Bologna about the efficacy of these kinds of policies and about where gun taxes actually exist right now.
3: Now, at the state level, there is not a ton of action currently. Very, very few states and local jurisdictions currently have specific taxes on firearms ammunition, but that wasn't the case historically. So in the mid-19th to early 20th century, there was a bit more policy action happening in the tax space. So I think it's, you know, it's difficult to get legal information from way back then, but the estimates I've seen have been that about 12 states had specific firearm or ammunition taxes, and these might have been taxes on the manufacture, sale, carrying, or use of firearms. So they were quite a bit more common back then. And one interesting kind of side note is the types of states that were imposing these taxes are not the states we typically think of today as associated with very restrictive gun policies. So you had quite a few states in the South and states in the Mountain West that were imposing not insubstantial taxes on the use or acquisition of firearms way back then.
2: Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, what about at the uh, local level these days, though? There's a couple jurisdictions, right?
3: Yeah. So these days there's been a lot of proposals, um, but currently I think only two local jurisdictions have firearm and ammunition specific taxes. That's going to be Seattle County and Cook County um, in Illinois. And those both have a $25 tax on firearms and then a $0.01 to $0.05 tax on cartridges. There's also, this year San Jose passed a law, it's a little unclear how this will be rolled out. It's not a tax per se, but it may function somewhat similarly in that it's a, it requires gun owners to pay a fee and then also to obtain liability insurance.
2: And and, and your analysis of these different uh, tax programs, what sort of public policy objectives uh, were they designed to, to achieve? Was, was it revenue or was there something broader?
3: So I I think the main goal, right, is, is to reduce gun violence. That's kind of the stated goal of these. And you can think of that operating through two kind of linked channels. One is if the, you know, higher taxes translate into higher costs observed by the consumer, then maybe you have some consumers who are either purchasing less guns, less ammunition, or just fewer individuals going to purchase these items. And that lessened gun availability may translate into lessened gun injury and death. And then on the flip side of that is the revenue generated by these taxes can maybe be used to improve public safety or gun violence prevention programming.
2: Now, um, I think we're all aware of the uh, the horrors of gun violence in the United States at the moment. Uh, in your view, is the taxation or fee programs associated with guns and ammunition um, is it meaningful or useful to create such um, levies uh, to um, compensate or, or cover the expenses associated with these social costs?
3: Yeah, I mean, it, it's a valid endeavor. And I think it's certainly possible that this could partially offset some of the costs of gun violence. I think there's a couple wrinkles. I think particularly when we think about these local taxes, uh Local taxes aren't that hard to avoid, so that's going to somewhat undermine this. That's going to be less possible in the case of a state tax, though still somewhat possible. Even less possible in the case of a federal tax. But so there is that kind of avoidance behavior that can happen. And I think on the other, the other point I'd make is that these taxes tend to be quite small, um, quite modest. And I think that is partially due to a concern about a legal challenge should the tax be, you know, quite onerous. Um, And so there, it's unclear the extent to which you're going to end up getting the amount of revenue you would need to offset such large kind of social costs. Um, One other point I'd make with respect to this is these taxes, the way they have been levied, typically affect kind of the flow of new firearms into a community, which does very little to account for the massive stock of firearms that already exist in the U.S. I think... A recent estimate is 390 million guns are in the U.S. available to civilians, owned by civilians. That's likely higher given the surge in purchasing we've seen in the past year or two. Um, so so you're really operating at the margin there. A lot of the gun violence and the costs associated with gun violence are going to come from the existing stock of guns. And it may take a very long time uh, to ex- experience any serious reductions from just marginally affecting that flow.
2: Yeah, and I think I've, I've read some things that you've written on the subject, and it sounds as though uh, you're a little bit dubious about uh, gun taxes as a way for addressing um, a gun violence. Um, can you talk about any other ways in which uh, this type of taxation is ineffective as a... a as, as a tool for addressing this social problem.
3: Yeah, and I, I'm not, not to say, again, that we don't have strong evidence for how these taxes work. So they may well be effective at reducing gun violence. I don't think we know that empirically, but I think there are a number of reasons that their effectiveness may be kind of hindered. So one is that the fact that, you know, firearms are durable goods, a ton of them already exist in the US and they were really affecting kind of guns being purchased at the margin. I think another, Another, this doesn't necessarily kind of hinder the effectiveness of a tax, but it makes the tax less proximately related potentially to reducing gun violence, is thinking about um, are the people whose purchasing decisions are affected by the tax, those people who are the intended target of the policy. So we can contrast this a bit with like, let's say alcohol or cigarettes. There, the people who bear the heaviest burden of the tax and pay the most in taxes are the people who drink the most alcohol and the people who smoke the most cigarettes, right? And those are typically the people who we think that that is the harmful use and that is the use behavior we're trying to curb. With the case of firearms or ammunition, it's not clear that the heavy consumers, let's say of of firearms and ammunition from the legal regulated market, are the people whose use is most proximately related to gun violence, either perpetrated to oneself or to others. So there's a little bit of a potential mismatch there. And I'd say the final reason is that there's different channels by which one can acquire firearms. Right? We, and, and those different channels, I think, are less able to be kind of regulated and monitored and have kind of tax compliance enforced. The easiest channel for that, uh, ensuring compliance, is going to be kind of federally licensed firearms dealers who are required to maintain records, who are required to conduct background checks. So it's a lot more easier to observe that transactions are occurring. It's going to be a little bit harder, particularly in states that don't require private sellers to conduct background checks, to see whether those sellers are complying with the tax, right? So you may end up just shifting individuals from purchasing from federally licensed firearm dealers to private sellers, and I guess at worst, uh, forcing them into the illegal market, right? So all of these are going to limit the ability of your tax to actually reduce kind of firearms consumption, whether it be of the guns themselves or of the ammunition.
0: That was Rosanna Smart, an economist at the Rand Corporation. Before that, you heard Pete Patterson with the firm Cooper & Kirk. They spoke with Bloomberg tax correspondent Michael Bologna. And that's it for today's Talking Tax. You can find up to the minute news on the latest tax and accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz, Patrick Ambrosio is our editor and our executive producer is Josh Block. And we should say, Everytown for Gun Safety advocates for universal background checks and other gun control measures. Bloomberg Law is operated by entities controlled by Michael Bloomberg, who serves as a member of Everytown for Gun Safety's advisory board. From Washington, I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening.
3: The number of words in the tax code is estimated to be one million about the same length as the entire Harry Potter series. Add in IRS regs, rev rulings, and case law, and it can be a lot. We all need a little help to sort it out. Each week on the Tax Girl podcast, I talk to the best in the business. And these aren't crazy technical dives. They're interesting and easy to digest looks at topics that matter to you. It's all that you need to stay ahead on the most important tax issues. You can subscribe to the podcast for free on taxgirl.com because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.